Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 4 of the Scene From Above podcast. I'm Alistair and this show aims to bring you an informal discussion about the cool things happening around the world of remote sensing at the moment. You can reach us via the podcast webpage, seenfromabove.org, where you'll also find the podcast archive and show notes. Follow the show on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. Things are a bit different this episode. As it's summer here, we're having a bit of time off from our usual recordings. But don't worry, we'll be back in September with our usual format. So for this episode, we have a series of short chats with various people about how they are involved in remote sensing day to day. Hi there. So um, could you just tell the listeners who you are and what you do related to remote sensing? Uh, so my name's Cameron Shield. I work for a company called the Satellite Applications Catapult, which is a partially government-funded company, and our remit is to grow the space industry in the UK. Uh, in particular, I work in the Geospatial Intelligence Department on a project called CDAS, which is all about making um, the Sentinel remote Sentinel data available to as many people as possible as easily as possible. Oh, cool. Okay. So is that a sort of portal that you're trying to put together? Yeah. So um, obviously, the Sentinel data you can get through the ESA's um, the main limit on that is you can only download two bits of data concurrently. So we went, well, we'll just download all of it, and then you can download as much of it from us as you want. So what's your role in that? Are you putting together the technology behind doing all of that? Well, we've been up and running for about three years now, um, and my specific role is making sure that it's working at any given day. But then I also support everyone else who uses it. So we've got users who are looking at deforestation in Colombia. We've got one of our projects is called ESOS, which looks at oil slicks in Malaysia and how they impact the mangroves and then tracking them back to see roughly, you know, which ship might have dumped all that oil so they can be prosecuted. What else have we done? We've looked at cows from space, which is my favorite project. <laughs> yeah, that sounds brilliant. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's great. <laughs> it, it was um, measuring how green fields were so that you could work out how much energy was in the field so you knew the optimal time to move your cows from one field to another. It's the project you tell people about and they go, wait a sec, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Were those projects done using data that was obtained through CDAS or is CDAS and those projects sort of separate entities in your, your work? It varies from project to project. Okay. The ESOS one with the um, oil map, that is using Sentinel-1 data through CDAS to, to get to work out while the oil, where the oil sticks are, but then it's backing it up with AIS data to find out where the ships are. In terms of what you were saying about the catapults remit to sort of support organizations and the uptake of satellite stuff, space stuff, am I right in thinking then that CDAS, is that just for UK organizations or is that for any? Uh, initially, it was set up just for UK organizations. Since then, we've gone, it's on the internet. What's the point? Um, so <laughs> anyone can sign up for it anywhere. We do have some, within it, we do have some um, closed data sets. Um, We've got Novasar, which is a satellite that was launched March and is going through commissioning at the moment. And that uses that takes SAR data and AIS data combined. And it's the first satellite to use both SAR and AIS. So SAR would be synthetic aperture radar. So that gives you, sees through the clouds and gives you a nice height maps of everything. And AIS is automatic identification system, which is every ship, well, all the large ships take like a mile to stop. Um, so they basically broadcast to say what they're doing, and that goes up upwards as well. So once it gets out through the atmosphere, you can pick it up with satellites. You can build up a global map of uh, shipping around the world. It's a horrible data set to work with. It, it gets corrupted 
all the time, uh, usually in the latitude and longitude. So you get these nice tracks of ships that suddenly jump up to the Arctic and back again. And basically, it's up to the ship to decide what their unique signifier is. So if you type in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, you get something like 10,000 ships around the world at any given point. A lot of people who listen to the podcast are early career people. So what sort of skills do you think are most important for people looking to try and follow in your footsteps? I mean, the first thing is be prepared to move on to a new job. I will quite happily rave about this job um, if you haven't worked that out yet. (laughs) Utterly enjoy it. I think it's a great place to work. I, I love the new challenges that keep coming up. And for a long period, I got stuck in a job which I wasn't enthusiastic about. And it kind of drove me down. And it wasn't until I went, actually, I am good enough to look somewhere else and change job. But that I started making the leaps towards the really fun stuff. Secondly, be prepared to, you know, no, you don't know the answers. Go look anyway. We spend our life doing stuff that no one else has ever done. And and part of that is the attitude that actually just because no one else has done it doesn't mean I can't do it now. No, that's brilliant to basically have the, the confidence to go and make your own success type of thing. Yeah, basically. I don't think we can underestimate that. So I was just wondering, is there anything else you want to make sure that the listeners are aware of? So before I moved on to CDAS, I was uh, supporting all the different code bases that we're creating for all these different projects. And I think at one point I was supporting about seven different languages based on people just picking up what was useful for what the job they were doing. It was a headache. But, you know, we got through it. Um, So, yeah, I think it is very much be prepared to drop what you already know in favor of something new. Because, I mean, especially in Geo, there is so much interesting stuff going on at the moment. There's so many opportunities out there and ways to play around with data in interesting ways. That be prepared to pick up whatever you can and do whatever you fancy doing with it because you never know what you're going to find out. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that. That's been really, really cool. Okay, I'm now speaking to Francis Butcher. Uh, Thank you very much, Francis, for coming on to the podcast. Could you just quickly tell the listeners who you are and what you do related to remote sensing? Hello, uh, I'm currently a postdoc at the University of Sheffield. I've just started working on observations of glacial landforms produced by the Scandinavian ice sheet on Earth. But previously, I've actually been working on glacial landforms on the planet Mars. So I'm an interplanetary remote sensing person. (laughs) Excellent. So I've only very briefly seen some of the data that has come from Mars. Could you just explain the types of remote sensing data that you were using for that planet? The remote sensing data for Mars, as you say, is absolutely incredible. Every time I show it to an Earth observation person, they, they gasp in horror that Earth isn't quite as good as Mars in many, in many ways. And <laughs> um, they're often quite jealous. Uh, so there's quite a few instruments in orbit around Mars that are currently active. The key one being the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. And that has produced a global image mosaic of Mars at six meter resolution with its context camera instrument. Um, however, it also has a sort of gold standard camera called the High Rise instrument, which can take images up to 25 centimeter resolution (laughs) so this is an incredible amount of image detail that we can get Um, it is capable of taking repeat images such that we can produce stereo pair digital elevation models um, at a resolution of one meter horizontal resolution so this means that we can really produce fantastic 3d reconstructions of the surface of mars 
So is the idea to study the landforms there to better understand what's happening on Mars, or is it to basically understand the landforms where there's no vegetation in the way, and then you can try and apply it back to Earth? Well, the, the main intention of my PhD research, which is uh, which was on Mars, was mostly to sort of understand the sort of implications of glacial landforms on Mars specifically for the sort of paleo environment of Mars and reconstructing Mars's geologic history. However, the thing that's really interesting about Mars remote sensing is that because we have to be very resourceful because we can't go there and hit things with hammers we've really started to develop some important techniques that are sort of pushing the bounds of what we do on earth so effectively the Earth's remote sensing can learn from Mars remote sensing and Mars remote sensing can learn from Earth. So the techniques are kind of developing in, in parallel. So it's quite an exciting stage in Mars research, really. And particularly one example is that a lot of understanding of how rivers work on Earth is heavily influenced by vegetation and how it influences things like bank stability and things. Well, we have river channels on Mars and they don't have water in them anymore, but um, they did used to. And yeah. as far as we know, there was no vegetation. So understanding how they evolved can potentially inform uh, our understanding of how vegetation influences food activity on Earth. So there are lots of there's lots of overlap between the planets. Cool. Is there any specialist software or specialist pre-processing that needs to be done on Mars data before it's sort of analysis ready? I find that particularly having just come into a post-op on Earth processing, I actually find that um, in many ways Mars is kind of simpler in that sense than Earth because all of the NASA image data and I think most of the European Space Agency data is public domain. Right. So for example, NASA keep all of their remote sensing data on a central system uh, called the planetary data system and there's various levels of pre-processing that's already been done on that data. But it basically means that in, in many cases, you can just pull the image data or in some cases, digital elevation models that have already been made down and start doing analyses in standard products like ArcGIS, like QGIS. Yeah, so in, in that sense, it's quite simple. We obviously do do some further image manipulation. The USGS uh, provides pre-processing software that we can use to manipulate the planetary images as well. Um, something that a lot of people also don't know is that you can actually navigate the global six meter mosaic of Mars in Google Earth. Oh, wow. Excellent. The sort of default view is global, I think, 500 meter DEM. But if you scroll through a few menus, you can find the global six meter mosaic. So from what you've said, it sounds as if getting started in Martian remote sensing is relatively simple. But I was just wondering if there is anything that would have made the use of remote sensing data easier for your day-to-day -day job when you were doing your PhD on Mars or maybe I fully accept you've only just started your, your new job but maybe <laughs> that's something that you you are hoping you'll be able to get your hands on in order to make remote sensing data easier to use in, in your postdoc. Um, I think uh, we're at an interesting time in remote sensing in that there's a lot more movement towards use of open source software for analysis of remote sensing data. So a lot of my work that I have done in the past is in ArcGIS but obviously, for example, if you're an undergraduate student, which is how I started my planetary research uh, in remote sensing, often you might not have access to things like ArcGIS. I personally would like to start getting a handle on uh, sort of the open source, the use of, for example, R and QGIS right. uh, for analyzing these data sets and, and for teaching with them as well. Even if you're not doing detailed scientific analysis, just looking at Earth or other planets like Mars from above and just getting a sense of what the world is like around us or what other planets look like, I think is really important for inspiring like young people 
uh, into the sciences. So if they can just get their hands on things easily, like with Google Earth, and that can be improved in the future, then I think that's going to make a really big difference to the diversity of people coming into the field. That's interesting that you mentioned ArcGIS. That wouldn't have naturally been the the first piece of software I would have um, suggested had you asked me. But so are there planetary science specific toolboxes or projections or things like that that are supplied in ArcGIS? Uh, there is, a, if you go into the, the ArcGIS projections folder, there is a solar system folder. <laughs> right. Yeah, so there are some, there are some um, projections that we use. You basically tailor the sort of standard projections for Mars and get going. And, and you basically just tweak the projection based on the type of analysis you're doing. So you don't really need to worry about things like national grid systems and, and all sort of complicated things like that. Because the techniques are so similar and, and the data sets are quite similar in many ways, we do certainly for the work I do I tend to use the standard tools there are a few add-ins but people don't just use ARC people use MV particularly for uh, uh, spectral analyses of Mars obviously there's specialist software for generating DEMs it's kind of familiar the techniques that we use are are very familiar. Thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and, and for sharing those thoughts. Hi there, Amy. Um, Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Could you just quickly tell the listeners who you are and what you do related to remote sensing? Absolutely. Hi, Alistair. Nice to speak to you and thanks for the opportunity to come on the podcast. Yeah, so I'm Amy. I'm currently um, an independent research fellow at Loughborough University and I've been working with drones for about the past seven or eight years now doing research predominantly about how we can take imagery that we acquire from drones and use it to extract quantitative information about environments. My work specifically focuses on fluvial environments, so trying to measure things like water depth and grain size. But obviously, we've seen a huge expansion in the use of drones recently and their applications are numerous. Um, So I've also started branching out away from rivers and, and done some work on glaciers as well. I do fly the drones as well. I um, got my, my license back in ooh, 2012 now. So yeah, I've been, been flying for a while and I still find it sort of terrifying and exciting in equal measure. <laughs> and can you just quickly tell the listeners how you first got into remote sensing? Because was it through a sort of a, a desire to try and understand the environment or was it just because drones are super cool? <laughs> well, um, I suppose my first interest in remote sensing was when I was doing my undergrad degree in geography and I just thought it was really useful stuff and you know working with pretty pictures is always good fun. So then I worked with like LiDAR data for a while doing stuff in relation to forest plantations and then I worked in the commercial world doing environmental engineering consultancy and sort of did a lot of GIS and remote sensing stuff for those kind of projects. And while I was in that job, I sort of recognised that there was a lack of sort of very high resolution data for smaller scale studies. And we were relying a lot on very sparse kind of point measurements, like topographic surveys, for example, yeah. that didn't really give us the full picture of what we needed to know about the site in order to make the right decisions about how the site should be managed. And those kind of projects were things like river restorations or landslide management, that sort of thing. And so drones were just kind of appearing on the on the civilian scene if you like at that point which was about uh 2010 2011 so i thought well you know i'm really interested in this drones can give us this high resolution detailed information that we need one way to to fix that is to go and do a phd myself and, and try and advance 
the field a little bit. Um, Obviously, over the time that you've been involved with drones, the number of people dealing with them has increased. And, and I suppose the technology has changed quite a bit. Is it much easier to be able to go out and collect and get to analysis ready drone data compared to when you first started? Or do you still need to know all of the steps in order to get data ready for your quantitative analysis? It's significantly easier now than it, than it was sort of seven or eight years ago, just in terms of things like the range of drone platforms that are available the cost of obtaining one, the ease with which you can fly one, all of those things have made them much more accessible. You know, when I first started out, there were very few academic papers that sort of helped you learn how then to take the drone imagery and to process and analyse it in a way that gave you something useful. So I sometimes feel quite frustrated that something that I spent years learning how to you know, you can now sort of master within a couple of weeks. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What do you see as the most exciting areas in your section of remote sensing at the moment? Well, one area which I am sort of currently exploring is, and I know you've you've mentioned this in some of your recent podcasts, is what we can do with drone data using kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence. Right. Because, you know, we're we're able to collect data sets using drones that are very detailed and you can very quickly fill up your hard drive with <laughs> lots of <laughs> massive images. The challenge is, okay, how do we how do we manage this data, but also how do we analyze it? You know, traditional methods of analysis go some of the way to doing that. But I think, you know, machine learning, deep learning, an area that's completely new to me and which I'm just starting to learn about myself, is definitely going to be a massive area of growth, I would say. Do you think it's accessible to people who are more interested on the data capture, data analysis side of things? It's certainly a challenge to learn this whole new area. I mean, for myself, I'm trying to teach myself Python in order to kind of gain access to these these methods. You know, even as someone who's got a, a quantitative-ish background, like it is, it takes a lot of time and energy to invest yeah. in learning those new skills. I'm lucky enough myself to have managed to get on this new initiative, which is called Tech Up Women, which is um, something that's being funded by the Institute of Coding to try and get more women in particular into, into tech and teach them coding and things, which is fantastic. So that's really helping me. Um, so what sort of skills do you think would be most important for people who are trying to follow in your footsteps, maybe make that transition out of commercial role into a more academic role or maybe get involved in, in the drone stuff? Definitely learning coding. I think it will be the future. And certainly what I'm hearing from lots of other people in, in similar positions is that they are learning coding or wish they had learned it earlier. In terms of other skills related to moving out of the commercial world and into academia, I don't know where to begin really. There's, <laughs> there's a number of, of big differences and part of the reason that, that I moved out of consultancy as well as wanting to explore the drones was also because in that kind of work you only get to, to scratch the surface really of, of all the interesting stuff and, and I found that a bit unsatisfying really. I wanted to, to have the opportunity to delve a bit deeper in and really kind of push the boundaries of the way in which we do things. Do you think that women are well represented in the sector? In, in my experience, there is a slight imbalance there. I think with, with a lot of sort of more techie subjects, as ever, you, you tend to get fewer women in those fields. But I think, you know, I've been going to sort of remote sensing conferences for 
for a long time now and it's never particularly struck me that I'm at a disadvantage or that, that I'm in a minority. And certainly within the UK, the RSPSOC, the Remote Sensing and Photogrammetry Society, has always been very diverse and very welcoming community to be a part of. If I think more about the drone side of things, that's a slightly different picture there. I've been to drone-based events where there's, I don't know, 100 people there and, and I'm the only woman in the room. Right which has its challenges. But I think that that is changing, you know, increasing diversity in Earth observation, remote sensing, and indeed in in any area is only a good thing. So I think it's just helpful for people to hear that others have been in that position or that the things that they're feeling are not necessarily unusual. Thank you very much for coming onto the podcast and telling us about how you use Earth observation day to day. It's been brilliant. Cheers, Amy. Lovely. Thanks ever so much, Alistair. I'm here at Royal Space, which is really cool. I've got Ed with me today. Could you just quickly tell the listeners who you are and what you do related to the remote sensing sector? Hi, I'm Ed Pallant and I work on calibration of satellite instruments. So I've been working on SLSDR on Sentinel-3 and we tested it in the lab and worked on the calibration on the ground and then were involved with the commissioning and keeping the calibration going during the mission and making sure it's working properly. So I first came across Ed when I saw a presentation that he gave and I thought it was really interesting because this whole notion of calibration of sensors is not an area that we as users of Earth observation data generally come across. So I suppose my first question to you is, am I right in thinking that every single sensor that goes up needs to be calibrated in some way? Um, Yes, because otherwise the um, data that you look at, the maps and stuff, would have no um, relation to physical units. So we need to match the measurements to something physical. Okay. When we talk about calibration, do you get dressed up in a a white suit and go into a a clean room or are you on the data handling side? I mean, is it a group of people that do this or is it just like two or three people that do it? How, How does it work? If I've got a sensor and I come to you, how do I get that calibrated? Yes, it's a group of people. And I guess the first thing would be to take it into the lab and measure the responses in the lab with the people in white suits and then work out how to to transfer that into orbit and have calibration sources that it looks at um, as well as the earth to take account of the fact that it might change with time and temperatures and the instrument. We're experts in calibration and we work on different missions designing the calibration system and also testing it in the labs and working once it's in in flight. And there's, there's they're building a new national satellite test facility which is going to have better labs. So what is the workflow or the process involved in calibrating a system? So there's several things that need to be checked. That the, the spatial response of the detectors, so the shape of the detectors, the radiometric response to calibrate the actual signals and get the correct brightnesses, and the geometric calibration to make sure they're pointing where you think they are in the map. (laughs) Always useful to be pointing where they need to be pointing. And do you, are you involved in all of those aspects or are there, uh, would a a person on the team have a specific role? Would one be radiometric, one geometric and one um, on the sensor? Yeah, we work in a a team with different people working on different aspects. Um, And the, the bit on SLSTR that I particularly worked on from the lab data was the shape of the detectors and later the footprints on the ground across the swath of detectors. My understanding is that once various things have happened in the lab then you 
get a whole load of data land on your desktop. What sort of tools do you use to do the uh, analysis around the calibration? We've mostly been using IDL to process the data, but we're moving to Python, so the latest project I've worked on, I've written my tools in Python. And how do you find the difference between IDL and Python? Is it a big learning curve to jump from one to the other? Yeah, I think it's relatively simple to switch in a kind of scripting way, but to get really into the objects and object-oriented bit is a, is a different thing. So yeah, the first switch is fairly similar. So can you just talk a little bit about, in general terms, the type of data you get? So is it information on spectral response across different wavelengths, and how does it come to you? One of the things I worked on for SLSDR is the um, detector response. So we had a point source and we moved it across the detector to kind of map out the shape of the detectors. Um, so that's mapping data of the detector shapes. Uh, the data comes out of the instrument as uh, binary packets, so it's a binary file with a stream of packets that has to be sorted, reorganised and converted from binary to um, engineering units. So that sounds like fun. <laughs> it's um, right from the very basic level before getting to something like a NetCDF file. Ah, okay. So we've recently been talking about NetCDF on the podcast. Um, that's what the final level one and two products are in. So another advantage of Python is it's much faster at reading that sort of thing than IDL. Cool. If any of our listeners were thinking of following you into this part of the space sector, so basically calibration of um, sensors before they go off on, on the system. What sort of skills do you think they should be looking for? From the data side, certainly coding and scripting languages like IDL, Python, and also, I guess, physics. That <laughs> <laughs> old chestnut physics, eh? <laughs> Are there any sort of areas that you see in your day-to-day -day job where new skills might be required? So I'm, I'm thinking particularly sort of cloud processing and that type of thing. I mean, the cloud stuff is coming up, and that is something that is going to be important. And are there any upcoming missions that you're excited to be working on or anything? I'm doing a bit of work for Microcarb at the moment on the data analysis of the calibration system and preparing that. And is that a similar type of thing as you did with your Sentinel-3 work? Um, this is looking at the uh, calibration, so more looking at the lamp and the, whether it's bright enough and uniform enough for the calibrator and, um, rather than the detectors themselves. Effectively, we as Earth observation data handlers tend to download the information we want either from an open source or a proprietary source. And to a certain level, that has been pre-processed and is ready for us to use. Would you say that without the work that you do, none of the type of work that we do would be able to be carried out? Absolutely, because, um, you, yeah, you wouldn't get... Um, well, there's a lot of discussion about analysis-ready data now, and... The amount of work that goes into making something analysis ready is huge. So a lot goes on behind the scenes before you get your map that's geolocated properly and with relative brightnesses between different bands and different spatial resolutions sorted out. So brilliant. Thank you very much. If you have any requests for new segments, topics for us to discuss, or guests you'd like to hear from, then we encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at EOSeenFrom or our personal accounts at AJGJogger and at Matt underscore Andrew. Please do get in touch and help us build a vibrant community around the podcast. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. See you again in September.
I get paid for this, so, you know. <laughs> it's more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Podcast music is Cracker Jacks and Tin Whistles by Ocean Heights and is licensed under the Attribution Non-Commercial Creative Commons license. Available on freemusicarchive.org.